this month on Security Management Highlights. The malware then infiltrated the devices, compromised them, and made them part of this massive botnet army. Have you ever had to click the boxes on a web page to prove that you're not a bot? Cybersecurity editor Megan Gates tells us more about the harm these internet robots can cause. The U.S. faces a wide range of domestic challenges related to the abuse of entrusted power. Many Americans say they believe U.S. officials and other institutions are corrupt. But what's driving that perception and can it be stymied? News and Trends editor Mark Tarallo explains. Plus, them being aware of their environment helps them alert other people, and that does absolutely save lives. Brad Spicer, member of the ASIS School Safety and Security Council and founder and CEO of Safe Plans, talks about the role unarmed security guards play in preventing and mitigating active assailant attacks. I'm your host, Associate Editor Holly Gilbert Stowell, and that's all ahead on the April 2018 edition of Security Management Highlights. A report from security firm Imperva found that 52% of internet traffic is made up of internet robots, or bots for short. Cybersecurity editor Megan Gates is here to tell us more about how the bad sort of bots are harming the internet and the battle being waged to stop them. Hi Megan, thanks for stopping by. Hey Holly, thanks for having me. You start off your column with a powerful example of just how dangerous bots can be, even though not all bots are bad, let's caveat, and the havoc that they can wreak on the internet. Can you recount that story for us now? Yeah, so three friends, Paris Shaw, Josiah White, and Dalton Norman, they wanted to gain an advantage in the game Minecraft. This is a game where users create their own worlds and experiences by digging and building 3D blocks. It's super cool. It spawned this whole culture of Minecraft art, different cities, tons of you know kids and adults play this game. You can play on your computer, on your tablet, on your phone. And so when people play, they can link to individual hosted servers to play in multiplayer mode. People can host their own server and then rent it out to players and are making an insane amount of money. They can make up to, you know, recent estimates by Wired found that people were making $100,000 a month just hosting these servers. And so Ja, White, and Norman, they decided that they wanted to get in on this market and they created a malware that would scan the web for Internet of Things devices that use default security settings for usernames and passwords. The malware then infiltrated the devices, compromised them, and made them part of this massive botnet army, which we now have called Mirai. And this botnet was used to launch several massive distributed denial of service attacks against different targets. French hosting provider OVH and Brian Krebs website Krebs on Security. And so this sort of activity obviously caught the eye of federal investigators and they started looking into, you know, who's behind this activity, you know, why are they picking these specific sites? And they ended up coming on to to Jaw White and Norman and finding out that there was this whole Minecraft angle to this giant botnet that they were operating. So they investigated them, they were charged, and eventually White, Jaw, and Norman all confessed to engaging in this massive scheme to get an advantage in the game of Minecraft. 
So as you said, these particular hackers happened to be gamers who were trying to gain an advantage in their play, but there were much worse consequences to their actions as you write. How is the U.S. government responding to this attack vector? This is actually an area that U.S. President Donald Trump has taken interest in. Last year, he issued a cybersecurity executive order. In that order, one interesting thing that he did ask his secretaries of Homeland Security and Commerce to assess is actions that could be taken to, quote, drastically reduce the number of botnet attacks that we're experiencing in the United States. So the secretaries, they launched roughly like six months of research. They met with stakeholders, issued their first draft report for public comment in January 2018. The report enhancing the resilience of the internet and communications ecosystem against botnet and other automated distributed threats. Quite a lengthy title. And it was published and put out by the National Telecommunications and Information Administration, NTIA. This is part of the Department of Commerce. And you write that the NTIA identified six themes that pose opportunities and challenges to reducing the threat of botnet attacks, as well as five goals in its report. It's not a government report without numbers and steps such as those. Can you share what those were with us? So the report looked at challenges to reducing the threat of botnet attacks and that they are a global problem, that effective tools exist to combat them but are not widely used in the marketplace. Products need to be secured at all stages of their life cycle. Another challenge was that education and awareness about botnets is needed and that market incentives are misaligned to address the threat of botnets and that botnet attacks are an ecosystem-wide challenge, so one person really cannot solve this issue. So these actions, they take the form of five goals in the Secretary's report, and they are identify a clear pathway toward an adaptable, sustainable, and secure technology marketplace, promote innovation in the infrastructure for dynamic adaptation to evolving threats, promote innovation at the edge of the network to prevent, detect, and mitigate bad behavior. Fourth was to build coalitions between the security, infrastructure, and operational technology communities. And then the fifth was just to increase awareness and education across the ecosystem about botnets themselves. You did speak with two sources who said the report didn't go far enough in its findings and recommendations for stopping this threat vector. So what did they say and what improvements for stopping the bots did they offer? Yeah, so I had two really great interviews. One was with Michael Marriott. He's a research analyst at Digital Shadows. When he really addressed the fact that many Internet of Things devices are developed outside of the United States and then sold to an international market where they can be compromised. So the United States could pass regulations, they could require certain security settings or modifications be made to devices, but that only applies to devices you know that are manufactured or sold in the United States. And the internet is a global ecosystem. So what happens in Europe can have an impact in the United States or what happens in Asia. So what was really missing, he felt, from the report was the need for an international approach and specific actions that the the United States could take to engage its international partners to get them to adopt some of sort of the same priorities. And then I also spoke to John Dixon, CISSP and principal at Denim Group. He's a former U.S. Air Force officer who served in the Air Force Information Warfare Center. He said that he was really disappointed in the draft report. His quote was that it was completely devoid of specific policy ideas and recommendations. So he was really looking for these are the specific actions that the United States government recommends taking or that we're going to want industry to take to really address botnet attacks 
And um, more of the report was sort of focused on, you know, we might recommend or suggest these areas. And so he specifically wanted more information on what the telecommunications industry should be doing, if they should be blocking certain types of traffic to stop botnet attacks while they're actually happening. At our press time for security management, there were no public comments from the telecommunications industry on this draft report. But since then, the U.S. Telecom Association has filed a comment, and it said in its report that it supported the industry-driven process underlying the draft report, but wanted more clarity on rules and obligations for preventing botnet attacks. And so we might see some of these initiatives and some of this criticism addressed in the final report, which is due to U.S. President Trump in May 2018. So we hope to hear how this story keeps developing. Thank you so much, Megan. Thanks for having me, Holly. The level of corruption Americans say they perceive in the United States is on the rise, according to a new study. But experts say there is hope in reversing that trend. News and Trends editor Mark Tarallo is here to tell us more. Hi, Mark. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Holly. You write about a study that shows Americans believe that corruption is rampant in the United States. Can you just share some of the findings of the report with us? Sure. The report was issued by Transparency International, TI for short, and every few years they put out a corruption barometer measuring corruption in different countries. This year they put out the U.S. Corruption Barometer 2017 and they measured corruption in the U.S. but specifically perception of corruption. One of the main findings is that a few years ago when they lasted this report, which was uh, January 2016, about a third of Americans, 34%, said the level of corruption in the United States has increased in the past year. They asked the same question a year later, and now it's 58%, or 6 in 10 Americans who say the level of corruption in the U.S. has increased in the past 12 months. So it's really a large increase. And as the report itself states, the U.S. faces a wide range of domestic challenges related to the abuse of entrusted power for private gain, which really is T.I.'s definition of corruption. And as you write, Americans definitely have a perception of corruption among federal government officials, federal government bodies. But you say another report found that one-fourth, 24% of Americans believe local government officials are corrupt. So it seems to be at all levels between these two reports. But what was that survey, the second one, and how did other U.S. institutions and groups fare? Yeah, that was interesting. That second one was done by the Anti-Corruption Portal. This is a portal that is endorsed and sponsored by the European Commission, and it's an online resource for anti-corruption compliance. It's actually maintained by a Denmark-based services firm called GAN Integrity Solutions. But what that portal found in its report was that 25% of Americans believe that their local government officials are corrupt. That seems to be a pretty high number for uh, local corruption, but I interviewed GAN CEO Thomas C. Hested, and he said that really corruption and perception of corruption 
often will ebb and flow. And so when people think that corruption is rising in the United States, they tend to think it's rising on all levels. So news at the federal level will trickle down to local governments, whether that's fair or unfair. That's kind of just the way it happens. And that second report also, as you mentioned, looked at other institutions. On the most corrupt end was the U.S. federal government. 38% of Americans said they thought that most or all members of Congress are corrupt. And 44% said the same thing about White House officials. So those are high percentages of people believing that those institutions are corrupt. On the low end are judges and magistrates. Only 16% of the respondents said that most or all judges and magistrates are corrupt. And then you have the variance in some institutions like police departments. Overall, police are actually ranking near the low end of corruption, but it varies by race. Overall, for instance, 20% of respondents believe that most or all U.S. police are corrupt. But when you just look at African-Americans, almost one-third of the African-American population believe the police are highly corrupt. So what were some of the issues of concern, just to get a little bit deeper into the types of questions in the survey that respondents had, and what did the TI study say is helping fuel this perception of corruption and inequality in the United States? Yeah, interesting findings on both those points. In terms of specific types of corruption, respondents in the TI study said their key issues of concern included the influence of wealthy individuals over the government, also concerned about pay-to-play politics and the revolving door between elected officials and industry lobbyists, and also concerned about the abuse of the U.S. financial system by foreign officials and local elites. Now, so there you have several issues of concern. And in terms of, as you mentioned, what fuels this is often kind of a vicious cycle. As the report said, when corruption happens, and especially when the country like ours is experiencing significant amount of income inequality, Both corruption and inequality create fertile ground for populist leaders to take power in the political sector. But the problem is, is that populist politics, and this is really whether you agree with them or not, judgments aside, populist politics are generally not aimed at stopping corruption. They're more aimed at things like, let's look out more for the average person, or, you know, let's lower government spending, things like that. But generally, populist movements don't involve a lot of specific anti-corruption measures. And so you'll get leaders and political parties that come into power that aren't really focused on stopping corruption. And so it can get worse and worse. So Mark, it's not all gloom and doom in your article. Fortunately, TI does make five recommendations to help government leaders fight this perception of corruption and corruption itself. Can you briefly describe each of those recommendations? The five are one, make political spending transparent so the public can read about political contributions online in real time. Two, 
block the government slash industry revolving door. So high level government officials can't easily become corporate lobbyists and draw on their connections. Third, prevent the use of anonymous shell companies, which can often be vehicles for illicit and corrupt activity. Fourth, reinforce the independence and oversight capabilities of the U.S. Office of Government Ethics, which has been weakened in the recent last couple years. And fifth, give citizens more access to information about government operations so they can be empowered to fight corruption themselves. Yes, sounds like they have a good plan, but will the government follow it? That would be the point of interest here. So thank you so much for stopping by, Mark. Thanks, Holly. Finally, unarmed guards can provide so much more than basic protection and customer service. As Brad Spicer, founder and CEO of Safe Plans, explains, these personnel play a critical role in detecting, preventing, and mitigating active assailant attacks. He joined me to share more on the topic. Hey, Brad, thanks for joining us again on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. So we're going to get a little bit deeper this time into the cover story. We appreciated that preview you gave us last month. Let's start out with the most basic principle in this whole article, which is the concept of pains. What does that stand for, and how are they applied in these possible active assailant scenarios when unarmed guards are you know, dealing with a person in question? Sure. So pains is an acronym for pre-attack indicators, and it's a part of what we call first timer syndrome. And the and the concept is that if someone is getting ready to carry out an attack, that's going to be their first and last act of mass violence. And there's going to be indicators of that. Now, some of them are out of necessity. So if someone wants to conceal a weapon, that requires something in the way they're dressing. Sometimes it is in the way they're moving, depending on the size of the weapon, or they need to carry a case that can conceal the weapon. Then it's also behavioral. So they have to conceal their intention. People have to do everything twice. First, we have to think about it, then we have to do it. So if we're able to observe people, pre-attack indicators become a little bit more uh, obvious. So one of the things we train is we're always on the lookout for universal signs of danger. So we don't want to miss the forest for the trees. If someone is showing signs of obvious danger, like carrying a weapon or not just an active shooter situation, it could be a vehicle driving on a sidewalk. That's all the information a security professional needs to act. That's an obvious danger. But the more subtle things are are the the pre-attack indicators. Those can also be driven at a behavioral level through the limbic system, which are things that we can't control. So we've all heard of fight or flight, but it's really freeze, flight, or fight, uh, and that those are autonomic responses that people can't control. So someone might not literally freeze and go into panic mode if they're surprised, but if a security officer engages someone that has hostile or possibly bad intentions, and that person pauses, that can be the first start of a freeze. The person can overcome it. If someone starts to pull away when a security officer walks up, that can be an indicator that they were thinking about running. So they have that autonomic, uh, that limbic system response of flight. And then if they start to, you know, maybe square up to the security officer or get a more aggressive posture or try to look larger, that can be an indicator of a fight response. It's happening more at the, not really subliminal, but subconscious level. So the pre-attack indicators are a broad thing. It starts with the behavioral. It, it includes attire, dress, things they're carrying, but then also some more subtle things about the way the person is acting. 
So pre-attack indicators is an important thing for any security professional, armed or unarmed, to understand. Absolutely. And speaking of principles that are critical for security guards, of course, hospitality is one of those. So what is the 10-5 rule in customer service, and how does it apply in this situation with unarmed guards and potential violent or active assailant situations? So the 10-5 rule, really, it started with Sam Walton, who coined what he called the 10-foot attitude, which whenever someone that worked for him came within 10 feet of a customer, they were to make eye contact and smile and ask if they could help them. Some places like uh, Four Seasons have taken a little bit further and it's 10 feet, make eye contact, five feet, give a greeting. But the concept is part of customer service is engaging people so that you're making sure they have a good experience. Well, most security professionals still work in an, in an industry that requires a degree of customer service. So it's not that customer service becomes the first and only job of security, but in the professional world, that's everyone's job. So what we do with the 10-5 rule is it also helps the security officer engage people because one of the things we want a security professional to be, that we call our training program Sentinel because it, it really focuses on vigilance and being able to recognize things, to perceive danger. Well, we can only be vigilant and perceive things for so long if all we're doing is standing there watching people. So the 10-5 rule helps security officers engage people in a positive way. So it's still good customer service. And by making eye contact, we're able to engage our intuition. And intuition is always right in two ways. One, it's always in response to something. And it's always acting in a person's best interest. So if we want the security professional to be able to engage their intuition, they can't just stand back and stare at a crowd without making any engagement with people. As people come close, they make eye contact, smile, get that understanding of what that person's intent might be. And then, if need be, we do the five-foot greeting. And then if we still don't feel good, that can take us to the next level. But the 10-5 rule really helps people to engage because it's one thing to put a security professional in a post, you know, whether it's in a, a hospital, a shopping mall, at an office building, and just tell them to, to look for something out of the ordinary. Well, that's not enough. We need to engage people so that we can understand these pre-attack indicators and these behavioral things more effectively. The next step that you talk about is a focused conversation. What is that and what types of questions should it consist of? So a focused conversation occurs when the security professional engages in the 10-5 rule, so it's not universal danger. They're not seeing an obvious or imminent threat. But during that 10-5 engagement, something just didn't seem right with that individual, whether it was the way they were dressed, they could be concealing a weapon, the way they were moving, their arm swing indicated they could be concealing something, they weren't willing to make eye contact. Whatever it is that security professionals during the 10-5 engagement said, I need to know more to know this person is not dangerous. So the focus conversation is just that. We're engaging that person in the conversation so we can learn more about what we call their trip story. Everyone has a trip story. It's where we're going or where we've been. So a focus conversation utilizes open-ended questions just to get that person that is of concern. We're not saying they're a threat. Just get them to communicate to us so we can learn more if we think they're a danger. So uh, an example of an open-ended question at a mall would be, where are you heading today rather than are you going to Macy? So we want that person to have to answer. It's an easier question for the interviewer, and it requires the person we're talking to to give some thought. And if they have to lie, people are not effective liars. When they have to conceal their answer through a lie, and they're also concealing their possibly dangerous behavior through their actions, it becomes very difficult, and then it becomes a little bit more easy for the security professional to say, hey, this person is a concern. So a focused conversation is just a way that when the 10-5 rule indicates that something's not quite right, we're able to, to go on to a little bit more through the focused conversation.
So finally, let's say the guard has employed all of these steps and determines that person to be an immediate danger to everyone around them. What are the next steps that they should employ? Obviously, it's going to be a, a tense situation, but how do you kind of keep your calm and remember a standard operating procedure in that situation? Sure. A big part of our training program is to make sure that they understand the run, hide, fight options and how they're applied and how they can be applied in their environment. So in the very rare instances, this person is a danger. It's important to remember that your awareness of a threat does not increase your risk and your ignorance of a threat did not make you safer. So it's actually good that you know this person is dangerous. It's rare. But us being aware of this situation makes it easier for us to act. If active assailant had to attack an institution, when would we rather know it, the parking lot or the front door? Well, obviously the parking lot, the front door or the lobby, well, the front door. The sooner we can recognize a threat, the more options we have. That the security officer was aware of this person's behavior during the 10-5 engagement enough to have a focused conversation. And then during the conversation, they felt even more uneasy about this person. This has given that security officer the advantage of knowing that they have to respond and being able to have a game plan based on their environment. So if they're in a lobby area that obviously cannot be secured, they can be prepared to order everyone in the lobby to run away and get to safety. If they're in an area that allows them to alert the rest of the facility through a panic alarm or a voice intercom, they can alert over the radio to someone else, their dispatch center. So it's really understanding their environment. So if it does turn into an imminent threat, which is incredibly rare, but it's important they be prepared for that, their ability to communicate to others, that includes other security officers in the dispatch center, so they can alert the entire building, the people in their immediate area, just by telling them to run and providing that leadership. So the focus of this really is on the unarmed staff. An armed police officer has got a different capability and response, but this unarmed officer can still save a lot of lives because they're right there where it's happening, but they're prepared to act. The element of surprise has been removed. They're aware of what's going on, and they're able to alert other people. So what we say in our training is is that that unarmed officer can be a leader to help other people in making those run, hide, fight determinations. The goal of the training is not to try to figure out a way to take an unarmed security officer and magically give them a tactical advantage over an active assailant or active shooter, because that's just not realistic. But them being aware of their environment helps them alert other people, and that does absolutely save lives. When we look at situations where these active shooter-type attacks occur, If someone can respond quickly and give people guidance, it gets people out of this lockdown mentality. At the Pulse nightclub, during the attack, 13 people ran into the restroom of the Pulse nightclub to seek shelter because we've trained young people that lockdown is their best response in a school. So these people bypassed exits and doors to get away from the attack for the value of going into a a room that had a wall that they could sit against because that's how we've trained them in school. So that armed security officer can actually get people away from that lockdown-only mindset and get them away from the threat because they're aware of what's going on and they provide good guidance. Thank you so much, Brad, for sharing all this with us today. Happy to do it. Thanks again. That's all for this month. Be sure to check out any bonus material posted throughout the month. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to us on SoundCloud or iTunes so you don't miss an episode. Once again, I'm your host, Holly Gilbert Stowell. Thanks so much for joining us. Until next time, bye-bye.